Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Today's reading is from the second book of Peter, chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1 to 9. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul with the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Indeed, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, help us to understand it now and to listen and uh, guide this time as I share. And Father, speak to our hearts what you uh, need us to hear, each one of us. Give us that encouragement or that correction or Lord, whatever it is that you know as we seek you to hear that we need. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I've only had one surgery in my life. It was about five years ago on my lower back. And uh, I asked so many questions of the doctors. I remember especially the anesthesiologist. I was just trying to wrap my mind around what it is they actually do when they put me out and what's going to happen. And so I was just drilling the poor guy with a million questions. I feel terrible for him. I was thinking, what is, you know, what's in a doctor's mind when he's trying to explain to a patient something that the patient can't possibly really understand. It's like, how much do they tell you? It's not, it's not like they're trying to really explain to me how it happens so that I can like go to someone else and do it myself. Hey, you're, you're back, you have a herniated disc. I totally know how to fix that. You know, it's not, it's more like, he's just trying to tell us enough that we can trust him basically. And that's for a lot for different people because he knows I've got to actually submit to this trial. And it really is a trial going through surgery. And I got to get to the point where I trust him enough that I can submit to that trial. It's a bit we're talking about today. You know, we're back in our series in Second Peter called The uh, Pursuit of Faith. And as we remember, Second uh, Peter is not about essentially coming to faith in Jesus, but the pursuit that happens once you do come. That now it's not something that you haven't arrived You've actually, in some ways, began when you say, I believe in Jesus. And now he goes, now you need to pursue your faith. And, uh, and, and Peter kind of lays out these things that are actually oftentimes 
trials that are going to come in for us. And we're talking about one of these big trials today that the church is going to have to go through. And he offers an, uh, an unlikely comfort to us. I think oftentimes when we think of these comforting words from God in the scripture, this is a comforting word, but it may not be what we're expecting for the normal comforting words. So that's what we're going to talk about, this, this unusual comfort. Uh, so first we'll talk about what is this trial they were under? What is this unusual comfort that was offered? And lastly, how does that actually comfort us? And what is the application of it? So the, uh, the trial, the comfort, and the application. So firstly, the trial, what's going on? Well, if you remember at the end of uh, chapter one, he was talking about the word of God and talking about how they were eyewitnesses of his glory and then talking about these specific scriptures. And he uh, brings up this idea that the prophet's language was um, what the prophet said that he says that though they were human, they actually spoke from God. So they were in all their humanity speaking about their, you know, their time, their place, everything they were doing, but yet they were being moved along by the Holy Spirit and actually speaking the word of God. As you see here, never prophecy doesn't have its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carrying along the Holy Spirit. But then immediately as you begin chapter two, he goes, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. It says will be this future tense, but actually then he's going to begin to talk about the present. So this it's future there will be, and they are now. And a lot of people make a huge deal over this going from prophets to teachers. And uh, you can go ahead and pull that down right now. We'll pull it back up in a sec. And, um, and they would, and a lot of people make, basically we're going through a lot of things which theologians argue about in this little passage we have. And I don't want to get into too many of the arguments, just touch on them so you know they're there because they make a big distinction. Wow, why not say there's false prophets among us at the same time there's false prophets back then? And it says, there's an, you know, it says implies that there are no prophets today and no prophecy today and that kind of thing. And so um, I don't think it's exactly saying that, especially since other you know, New Testament things talk about prophecy and prophets. But there is an element to which it's different. And here he's talking about there were false prophets. He's talking about the true prophets right there at the end of chapter one, saying these guys like Jeremiah and Isaiah who were being, you know, speaking from God and recording the word of God as well. That's one of the key things. They're recording the word of God. And he says at the same time, people were speaking from the Lord uh, legitimately, right? When the Holy Spirit is moving them, there are also people speaking from the Lord right next to them, but they were not speaking from the Lord. They were making that claim. But they were speaking. They were, you know, speaking from themselves or from their imagination, speaking dangerous things. They were false prophets. And he's saying, in the same way that Israel experienced that all that time, that there were people speaking for God, right in, the, you know, right next to people who were uh, speaking really against God but claiming it. So it is now, and in your church, there's false teachers, and that's what he's going to talk about. These false teachers have arisen in the church, and they're teaching really dangerous things. You might say, what are some of the things they're teaching? Well, if you uh, pull up the thing, you can see it looks, it's pretty heavy language. It says they're, um, they're bringing a swift, they're, they're secretly introducing destructive heresies. And heresies here, that it's actually, a, at this point, it's actually almost the exact Greek word. And it's the same word, it's a word that gets described sects and divisions and factions. It's not necessarily even negative. But when they put the word destructive heresies, now it's negative. Uh, but it says they, they, they make interesting language, denying the sovereign who bought them. Uh, it talks about the depraved conduct and greed and exploitation. And depraved conduct, you can tell it's just sensuality stuff. He's going to get into it in the later in the chapter. 
But this idea of the sovereign who bought them is one of these metaphors that get used a lot in the New Testament for the what God has done for us. And talks about sort of being like in bondage and slavery and through the, the blood of Jesus, we are redeemed, like we're bought back. And our sovereign, the words like our master, where he becomes our master and, and we are his servants or even slaves is really the language. It's actually one of the reasons we get, uh, people get confused about the teaching of the Bible on slavery is because it's a metaphor for how he expects all of us to be before him. You know, that we are, you know, that slaves in that sense, not a bad sense. We're servants, we're bond servants, which is they use that in English a lot because we get confused with that word. But the idea is that, you know, we are his and we obey him and we want to serve him. And here he's saying the false teachers are, we're, we're bought by him, but they're denying his sovereignty. They're denying that he is their master. Uh, and you could sell it's talking about like the life of godliness, right? They're going towards this, um, you know, a, a life of sensuality and, and not obeying him and not following him. And you can tell other things they're denying. They're denying, um, uh, you can see these accusations. You know, they say, where is this coming that he promised? We don't know if he's going to come back again. They say, you, you know, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus. So they're even denying, in a sense, his coming and who he was and what he was. And the crazy thing is it's in the church this is happening. And you're thinking, wow. So among people who have set aside and part of this community of people worshiping God, there's teachers who've arisen and said this stuff and really have, and it's not just that they're saying it, it says they're leading people astray and they're leading people towards this thing of uh, really it's uh, the path of godliness, right? This is a huge thing in Peter, right? He's given us everything we need to live a godly life. He's telling us to pursue godliness and moral excellence and all these different lines because you see in their midst, there are people who are not telling them to pursue a godly life and pursue Christ-likeness and to pursue moral excellence and pursue blood, brotherly kindness, all these things. They're getting away from all that. So the question is, what do you do about that? And what, what should be the thing? And you would think that, you know, Peter's going to give them a big charge as to you need to, you know, do all these things for these folks. You need to, you need to, you need to refute this stuff. And he is going to talk a little bit about the teachings, but that's not where he starts. His comfort, right? That's the trial. Now we're talking the comfort. The comfort is not actually, uh, you know, those things. If you look at what the comfort is, look at the text for a moment. It says, you know, uh, their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping, right? The, <laughs> the comfort there is that they will be judged, that, you know, they, they will have to answer God and the destruction has not been sleeping, implying that you probably think it has been sleeping. You think that, the, you know, how is God allowing this to happen in your midst? It feels like you're sleeping on the job, God. He says, no, it's hanging over them. And then he gives three scriptural examples here. And what's interesting in these three examples, all from the beginning uh, of the book of Genesis, the first half of it, and uh, he talks about these sparing angels, he talks about uh, the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, these three examples of judgment. And it seems kind of harsh to look at this, you know, judgment. Wow. But this goes, this is the, he says, this is the comfort. You see, if God, if he, if he, it's going to be an if then thing. And um, that, and look at the first one in particular, you might be looking at and thinking, wait, wait, hold on. It, and we'll get to the then, because then's the key thing. But here it says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. You're thinking, wait, wait, if God, did God do that? I don't remember that. You're thinking, I don't remember that in scripture. Where is that? Well, that's because it's not anywhere in that story. And you might be thinking, what is going on? There is a, there's this weird thing in Genesis 6 
where it says the uh, the sons of God who are, you know, very well could be a phrase for angels there and is oftentimes in the scripture uh, came to, the, you know, into the daughters of men and they, you know, they became like husband and wife and they gave birth to the Nephilim. And it's a really, we're not going to work through that whole very odd passage this time. It's very, uh, a lot of debates on it. But what you see here in what's happening in Peter is this is actually a, a, a well, a, kind of how the story was understood at the time of Peter and how they would talk about it. And it looks like it's quoting the book of Enoch, which is a, an apocryphal book. Um, and a lot of people get really disturbed about that. He's, hold on, he's, he's quoting the book of Enoch. And actually the other things where he talks about the flood and Lot also look like it's extra biblical stuff in there. And uh, firstly, it's, it's not a problem in the sense that biblical writers always use sources, right? We talked about inspiration before, it's not dictation. It's not like someone they're going, hey, hey, you, you. It's not how God dictated, you know? It was people in their humanity and their own thinking in a sense, in their own research and they used sources. You can tell the gospel writers interviewed people, use sources. You see in the Kings Chronicles, Torah, they're, they're drawing on sources. So it's not a big deal if people, uh, Peter would draw on sources. So all that to say, but the key point here is he mentions all these times of judgment. And if you look up there again, it tells you kind of why it's doing that, which is, uh, he says in the that last line, you know, he says, if you get in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burying into ashes and made them, this is this key line, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So you have both a purpose in the scripture, right? So you have all these judgments, especially even at the, at the front of scriptures, saying that this is that the, that judgment happens and one reason we need to see it you may think wow it just seems so harsh but actually as jack packer said judgment is god's unusual work he gives these examples of judgments and then there's like almost like very little judgment and you see from peter uh, from israel it was this reluctant thing he let israel go on and on and rebel and god's usual thing is to try to get people to repent try to get them to change, try to get them to come back to him. He sends prophets to them. And it's only finally when there's no more hope for repentance, that judgment finally comes, like when Israel was taken into Babylon. And so you, um, and so that's, that's sort of the pattern of, and we'll talk more about that because Peter gets into it in chapter three about this idea when there's no more hope for repentance. And you look at a place like Sodom and Gomorrah and you think, you know, one of the, if those remember the story, it was like, you know, the angels came there and then the whole city gathers around and says, you know, bring these people out to us. You know, we want to kind of have our way with them and, and, uh, and people make a, and, and, and it's horrible, but that's the point. It's horrible. So we see it on the outside looking in going, that is how bad the city got and how no, there was no more hope for repentance. And eventually judgment came. And, uh, and if you, now what's Peter's point, right? And if you look at it now, he takes the very next line in there, and then he explains, especially that last one, he says, and, and if he rescued Lot, this is all these and ifs, right? If he did this to the angels, if in the flood, if with Sodom and Gomorrah, he goes, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lotless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, here's the key, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. There's his bottom line right there. God is able to do this. You know, and, and, and the idea of Lot 
having to sit in the midst of this city getting worse and worse and worse and doing worse, terrible things. And he sat there and he's going, this is what it's like for you guys in the church. You're sitting there and you're seeing what's happening in you. And you're watching the, the false teachings and you're watching people go astray with this. And you're seeing that they're, they're leading them away from godliness back into the very world they were redeemed out of. And you're watching it and you're being tormented by it in the same way Lot was being tormented. And that's also one reason it will happen. And then it was present tense. And here he's talking about in the past being, this is how it happens. This is the life of the, and remember godly and righteous, you may think, gosh, I'm not perfect. That's not really when it talks about godly and righteous. It's not about perfection. It's about people who are trying to follow him, you know, who are, you know, uh, trying to obey him. You are the faithful who look to God. And you're saying it that, but he says the normal thing is you're sitting in a world that's in a sense awaiting judgment, awaiting that God will make things right. And this is the comfort here, as he says, I know judgment seems harsh, but he says it's actually comfort to you because judgment's not in your hands. And I think that's one of the strains we have is we think judgment's in our hands, that we've got to stop all these people from doing these horrible things all around us as we, as we move kind of towards our application, that we think judgment's in our hands. And God says, no, it's not. No one gets away with anything. That should give you peace right now. And God is able to rescue you. God is able to sustain you and pull you through this no matter what the world does around us, no matter what happens in the church, because let's face it. It, never a time in the churches have been where people haven't stood up in the midst and spoken in, in the name of God and done really terrible things. So it shouldn't shock you if that happens today, that people who claim to be speaking from Jesus are actually doing things that are not good. This is what's normal. And it says God will bring these things to judgment in time. But again, remember, he always wants people to repent. He wants people to turn. That's his normal action. And he goes, I'm able to keep you in this pursuit. That's his, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. You know, uh, that's what he says all the way at the start of the letter. And that's one of his big things. You have what you need to walk through this and God knows how to rescue amidst of it. You know, it's funny because that uh, I was thinking about the political divisions these days. If there's one thing both sides of the political spectrum begin on, they both have a complaint kind of to God saying, hey, how are you letting them get away with that? Or that people saying, how are you letting them get away with it? I can't believe what they're doing. You know, and there's this idea and for me, I think everybody's, I live in a deprived world. It shocks me not at all that people do bad things. Uh, but it says, but in a bit, it torments you. And sometimes living in this world can feel like a bit of a torment. You see some of the things that are being taught and some of the things being promoted. And you think, gosh, how could this happen? That God's saying, listen, I've got this one, right? I, I, I am able to sustain you and you're able to live in this thing and you don't have to execute judgment. You don't have to live in fear of that. So there's a sense that you can have confidence. And it's not that Peter's then calling them for passivity and to do nothing. He's then calling them to action. Because sometimes that could be the, the accusation. As people do that. They say, well, if God's going to take care of it, then I don't have to do anything. And God says, no, we are his hands and feet and his mouth in this world. But we are his tools. We are not the executors of judgment. And then we don't feel the pressure of that all being on us. And that really changes the way you act. You know, um, I was thinking about what happened. A, a good example uh, was happened last Sunday. And this is a very different example, but it maybe can, uh, maybe you've seen this guy before. I can't, what's his name again? Oh yeah, Tom Brady. 
you know, last week in this Super Bowl, and for those who don't know, like the one person who doesn't know who this guy is, they won the Super Bowl last week. And uh, Tom Brady, who's, you know, all for the New England Patriots all these years, went down to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he goes down there and he wins with them. And, and you could pull it down now. Like we all have Tom in our minds. Uh, but I think the thing that um, puzzles everybody is how did this guy go there and this team suddenly do so much better? You know, people call him the greatest of all time, but people, anyone who knows football at all realize he's actually not that great of a quarterback. I mean, he's a very good quarterback, but he's not like this transcendent talent. There's all kinds of guys who are, who are just amazing. In fact, the guy he played is one of these transcendent talents, you know, Patrick Mahomes, or if you look at Peyton Manning, or these other guys who are just Aaron Rodgers. These guys are amazing. Brady's not amazing. The thing that makes him like the greatest quarterback is he keeps on winning, you know, and he's able in a, in a team sport, when there's 22 guys on the field at one time in a 50-person team, the team he's on seems to win. And that's when the players on the Buccaneers said, gosh, it's something about this guy's presence. And when he, he spoke to us before the game, we suddenly had the sense that we were going to win and we were going to play up to our abilities. And everyone went out there and just played to the greatest of their abilities. And it shocked everybody. And it, it's interesting, it's that it was a confidence that came from behind. Because some people would say, well, gosh, if they feel like it's in their hands, that it, it, they need to feel responsible, personally responsible. And that actually leads to a sense of desperation. And people don't play well, they get desperate and they get, get discouraged. But when they feel like it, in a sense, doesn't rely on them, but they're part of you know, this guy and the rest of the team, and then they all are able, in a sense, to be free just to do fully what they are able to do. I think that's kind of the point that Peter's making, why he starts here, why he doesn't go to the desperate task, but he goes back first saying, listen, God is with you. Now you're thinking, am I likening Tom Brady to God? It seems like a New England thing to do. I'm not, it's just an illustration. But the idea that, uh, but that God's behind us should enable us to be everything God's, uh, you know, made us to be should give us a confidence to walk forward, but not a desperation. This idea that we need to hold everybody accounted for everything they do, and we need to stop everyone from doing everything. And it becomes like a desperation and almost like a dangerous thing. We're not God, right? God will hold all things to account. No one gets away with everything. Have that peace. And God is able to give you what you need right now to live the life he has called you to. You are thoroughly equipped. And so we go out there and we go and play that game. It's as if we go into the, uh, you know, the huddle before and he says, listen, just go do your job and get out there and do it. God's given us what we need. Trust in him. He will in his time and his way with things he knows that we don't know, he will make it right. You just follow him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we uh, bless you and praise you, Lord. Thank you for the comfort you say we're to have, Lord, that all, all things will be laid bare before you. Everyone needs to answer to you, Lord. They don't need to answer to us. Lord, help us to walk in this world with that peace and uh, to actually take that peace and that strength and be able to really fully live out that life you want us to, to uh, to call people to you, to live the godly life, to root out injustice in our world, but with the confidence, Father, that you see what we 
don't see, you're able to do what we can't do. We thank you, God, for your goodness and your mercy and for just the blessing it is to trust you in the midst of a world which can feel so out of control sometimes. We bless you in Jesus' name.